You want to know one of my favorite spots in all of the cosmos? My favorite location, my favorite destination. I've been to some cool places throughout my life, but Rick Drigger's house is one of my favorite <laughs> places in the world. Pastor Rick's house conveniently is located about 15 minutes south of here. Very convenient to be the best place in the world for me because I live eight minutes and 31 seconds from there. Why? Well, a little bit exaggeration, a little bit hyperbole, but it is a fantastical place because when I go there, I get close to the lake. And you know those drives where vegetation, things just start looking different, start smelling different, like I like this place. And there's a little bit of hills and there's a lot of trees and there's the lake right there and there's always wind and and you you, you get out enough that you can hear coyotes on a uh, a wonderful night there's campfires there's talks and it's always underneath a tree outside and so there's something particular about that location because i've been there many times enjoyed many times many of our elder meetings are at pastor rick's house under a tree, around a fire, even in May. But, but the, the location is, is the beauty. The times where we're so far out from the city, you are seeing the stars. You are taking in the moon. And you can kind of taste that the lake is so close. Now, you know I hate camping, but I love being outdoors. Why? Is because of this, because of this psalm, is because of not this psalm telling me that I should, but this psalm resonates with what I do, with what I see, how I respond. It, it takes in our observation, our uh, viewing of the world, and takes all of that amazement, all that awe, the excitement, that kind of Grand Canyon edge stuff, takes all that excitement and glory and rolls it to the one who spoke it into existence. So that's, that's why I love being outside. That's why I love being particularly at Pastor Riggs' house. But we're in Psalm 8. I want you to see this. This observing, this looking, this seeing of creation. Psalm 8. Verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Praise the Lord. <laughs> this is a psalm of praise. And if you've read through the Psalter, you see that there's something that's changed where it's gone from a lot of individual things to now we. But they typically start with a call to praise the Lord, saying hallelujah, praise the Lord. If you don't want to know what hallelujah means, it means praise the Lord. That's why we yell it. So we are praising the Lord. Or you're telling someone to praise the Lord. But instead of starting with a call to praise, it just starts praising, right? Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name. It's reverential, 
talks about his majesty, but it's also intimately intimate. <laughs> it, it's reverential, but intimate. The, the God whose majesty fills the earth is our Lord. That's the personal covenantal name of God. That's Yahweh, all caps, Lord. That's the covenantal name. That's Yahweh saying, this is I am. This is who I am. This is my name that I'll seal our covenants with. And so our Lord is, is signifying, is acknowledging that we are in covenant with him, that he is ours and we are his. If you want to know a little bit more about that magnificent of your name, want to know more about this, you can go where the psalmist's mind was most likely at, and that's Exodus 33, Moses' exchange with the Lord. Moses said in Exodus 33, 18, Please, Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. So then he does. What does he say? After he, after he carefully, intentionally provides a safety for Moses, because if he sees all of God's goodness, what's going to happen? Indiana Jones stuff, right? The Temple of Doom, no, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Melting, just trying to r refresh your memory. So God protects him and then passes by him, and what does he say? God's glory is the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That should take you back to, to Psalm 51 a few weeks ago. How happy is the man who's forgiven? But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bring the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed and worshiped the Lord. <laughs> the majesty of his name is that he's compassionate and loving and forgiving. To, to know someone in the ancient East is to know them by their name, and that includes their reputation, their character. That, that's what the psalmist is saying when talking about your name. Your reputation, your fame, your character will be seen. And what is it? When God displays it, when God reveals his heart, when he reveals his character, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God, Elohim, that means I am intimately personal in your life, personally involved in your life, but I'm also Elohim. I'm God. I'm over the cosmos. I'm both and. And he's just. Graciously just. He forgives, but he also has wired this world where there's consequences. Moses bows and worships the Lord. In response, the Lord revealing his name, revealing his character to Moses, his glory to Moses. 
Now, sometimes when we speak about the glory of God, I don't think we know what we're talking about. We're just saying that phrase, and it's like, I don't know what that really means. Like, his aura, right? <laughs> Is that what we mean? The aura of God? No, the glory of God is a noun. It means his majesty, his splendor, his display of divine goodness. Now, glorify, that word's a verb. So to glorify God means to, uh, it's the, the appropriate response to his goodness displayed. So the glory of God is his goodness displayed, and glorifying God is celebrating his goodness displayed. That's what it means to glorify God, to celebrate his goodness displayed, which means God is glorious regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not, whether anyone understands who he is or not. He's glorious, but we glorify God by seeing his goodness, seeing his majesty, seeing his splendor, and celebrating him in response, like Moses, bowing, worshiping, like the psalmist worshiping. That's what the psalmist is doing, is praising, worshiping the Lord, and inviting us to join in. But then we get to verse 2, a little bit difficult to understand, to interpret, but the point is that God uses the weak in this world to silence his enemies. Babies. Silencing God's enemies. He's that powerful. The terrible shrieks of the enemies are silenced by the praise of children. The account of Jesus in the, in the temple helps us come to that. Because at first you're like, mouse and babes, how do they silence? Are, are babies just walking around putting their finger on, on the lips of God's enemies? Just a shh. Shh, 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 shh. Babies are shushing people out here? So that's what's happening? No, the count of Jesus in the temple shows us what's happening. Matthew 21. The blind and lame, this is right after he cleanses the temple, and then the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So when the chief priests saw this, saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David! They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Do you hear what they're saying about you? Do you hear what they're confessing to the, all these people? They're saying you're the son of David. They're, they're, they're at least implying you're the Messiah. Most likely getting into the place where you're, you're, the, you're, you're the, the one that's promised. Do you get it, Jesus? That's what they're saying. <laughs> yes, have you never read? <laughs> you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing Babies. That's Jesus quoting Psalm 8. So no matter how the enemies of God assert themselves, they can't outdo the evidence of God's glory on earth and heaven. The, the praise of children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. It's a stronghold. The love and trust of children are devastating answer to the accuser and all of his slanders and skepticism. The praise of children. Doesn't that make sense of when Jesus says that you should have that 
that not childish but childlike faith, that just genuine love and trust that you're my dad and you have me. And when I need something, I talk to you and I go with you and you're mine and I'm yours. God's glory is on display from the heavens, from the skies, <laughs> to the mouths of babbling babies. John Calvin spoke as the, of the cosmos as the theater of God's glory. That the cosmos is a theater and the constant production that is rolling is Jesus is the hero. Give all the glory to the Lord. Every song, every down scene, every epic comeback, all points to the glory of God, the goodness of God on display. Look at verse 3. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. Feel that contrast? Seeing the beauty of everything, the, the vastness? And then what about just us, just me, just the person? What am I in light of this? Who am I? The answer is you made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything, to be clear, everything you created under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. The psalmist is like an amazed patron at an art gallery, just sitting in awe, observing God's handiwork, his skill, his craft, his creativity. Isaiah 40, 26 states, God brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Our, our response to his brilliance and to consider the theater of God's glory is not to view him or to see him as remote, distant, far off, a really big God that got all this going and then left and is kind of hanging out at the CCTV security place, just watching monitors. No. The response from Isaiah 40, 26 is that he's not far removed. Look at his eye for detail. He's intimately involved. He calls all the stars by name. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 48, 15, 18, a few numbers, adds, For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. He didn't, he didn't plan an empty and meaningless universe, but a home for his family. If you have kids, you remember that time you brought your kid home for the first time. 
but just go back in your mind. What did you do leading up to that? <laughs> you, you most likely created some space and worked on some space for them and, and, and you know, cut some knuckles and, and maybe said a word or two with that Ikea furniture, right? When you're trying to assemble it, just struggling. But, but you're preparing a place for your kid. You're creating space for them, a home for your family. That's the cosmos. That's what God has done in creation, created a home for his family. And then the psalmist asked the question our culture is asking. What is a man? What is a human? I say our culture because if you go back, the, the major question of the Reformation period, the 1600s, was how can a person be forgiven? Last century, the question was, what is authority? Is the Bible authoritative? Is it true? Should it guide us in, in what we believe, think, follow, do? Is it accurate? That was the question. Now, this, this question, current question is, what is a person? And sadly, the popular belief isn't Psalm 8. That you made humans a little lower than you, crowned with honor and glory. The popular belief is that humans are a clump of cells and there's nothing beyond this world where we live in an imminent frame where humans don't have intrinsic dignity because they aren't created in the image of God. They don't have clear purpose and meaning because the universe is void of such direction. It may give random notes here and there. They don't have a clear sense of identity. They lack a unified code of personhood and morality. They're haunted by doubt, feeling hollow and longing for transcendence. One author calls this the disenchantment of humanity. We've made this fairy tale world into a science textbook. To remove God is to remove the magic, if I can say that. To remove God is also to remove the beauty of personhood. So in response to observing the stars, moon, all of creation, man seems small, but small to God does not mean insignificant. What is a person? A person is a, someone who's made, is a being made in the image of God, crowned with honor and glory. A human is a royal vice regent of the Lord, our Lord. To wisely cultivate and rule, to, to cultivate order, you're a royal. I know that's weird in a, you know, rebellious country that didn't want to be under royals, and we don't get it, right? But you're a royal, a royal with meaningful responsibility. So, so things drastically change how you answer, what is a person? Your view of yourself, 
your view of others changes. There are implications for every hot-button issue of our day from this. Implications for racial reconciliation, abortion, orphan care, prison reform, marriage, left versus right, transgenderism. The implications flow from what? What is a person? That will, that will change how you view all of these issues. If a person is a clump of cells, an evolved animal with base instincts and desires, why really care about them? Why treat them with dignity? Why would you try to change their desires? Because their desires are really who they are, because they need an identity. And so where do they find their identity now? Their desires. If you don't have an identity coming to you externally, you'll create one internally. Did you hear me? If you're not given identity externally, you'll create one internally. Owen Strand, in his book, Reenchanting Humanity, confronts the, the self-expression of our day. He says, our identities, like the word of God, are firmly fixed in the heavens. God has said who we are, and though we may rebel against him, we cannot change who humanity is or who we are. We may deny our creatureliness, but denial cannot undo the work of God. We may act as creatures of the wild, but we cannot become wild. The mark of God is immovable, and on humanity, God has set his mark. Created in his image, stamped with the Imago Dei, means every person has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Every person. That's the teaching of Psalm 8. That this is how you've made man. In your image, crowned with glory and honor, to rule, putting everything under his feet, to rule, wisely rule and cultivate order in this world. Every person, whether older or younger than us, look different than us, of a different ethnicity, handicapped, have Down syndrome, able to work, cannot contribute to society. Every life has intrinsic value. It's not based upon your function. It's not based upon your accomplishments. It is definitely not based upon your ability to contribute to society it has nothing to do with what you have done, but who has made you. So every life. But when you define a person without God, you remove the royalty. And you make them an animal and and you also set an animal to be, up th to be their own God. Functionally, you get to the point where we're saying, God is not God, I am God, and I can make myself into whatever I want. I, I, I hope you hear, if you've been a Christian for a while, I hope you hear the, the arrogance in that for yourself. Arrogance that says, I can recreate myself into whatever I want. It goes straight into the face of the one God-man who died in your place to recreate you. 
God's not God, I'm God, I can make myself into whatever I desire. It, it feels good for a moment, but what's the end? What happens when human society lives this way? The claim is that we'll shed, you know, the, the hateful past and, and just walk in freedom. We'll all be free now. We'll all actually have the ability to flourish. But, but if you look at recent events, I see less flourishing and more chaos. So recent events, decades. Let me walk you through a bit of how we've got to this point. Through the sexual revolution and the invention of contraceptives, sexual intercourse was separated from procreation. Then sexual intercourse is separated from marriage of God's good design of one flesh. And then sexual intercourse was separated from having children, even from the weight of possibly procreating. Through the invention of no-fault divorce, marriage was separated from a lifelong covenant. Through the invention of abortion, human life was separated from conception. The child was no longer being knit by God in the mother's womb. It was part of the woman's body, and therefore with her personal autonomy, she could do whatever she wanted. Now, through the invention of hormone treatment and gender reassignment surgery, biological sex is separated from gender identity. Western society has so removed and divorced itself from God, and in doing so, have separated what God has joined together. Western society has dismantled the design and purpose of God's created order turning it upside down. Living, we're living Romans 1 in reality, in real life. Begin to worship itself instead of God and therefore believes it knows what's best and knows how best to achieve human flourishing. This is swapping the worship of the creator for the creation. This is swapping the truth for lies. Now, this is heavy. It should be heavy. Because what I listed all, not all, but most of the hot bush button issues of today. But I think they're all exposed and they're all addressed with your theology of what is a human. That's the question they're asking and trying to answer. And God has revealed to us that answer in Psalm 8 and all of scripture of who we are. And so, so if you're struggling with things, if you're struggling with desires, we've said this repeatedly. You should talk to someone. Come to us. Let us pray for you. Let us help you. Let your, your community group come alongside you and help you. That this is the place that we're, we honestly acknowledge and live that we all need Jesus. That our desires may look very different in function from each other. But even if that's the case, that doesn't mean that yours is 
worse than mine. Yours is unredeemable. Yours is unforgivable. Yours, it's not true. In the face of whatever sin, whatever failure, God's grace superabounds. And so I, I don't want to come off speaking as like, hey, us versus them. What I'm saying is this is our reality. And you've got to understand what you believe about humans. And then also to try to help us think through, how do I navigate this world? Because I'm in a very different world than I was 50 years ago, 10 years ago, four years ago. Right? So how do you navigate? How do you even understand some of the commercials that are happening? <laughs> how do you even make sense? How do you engage with people? How do you talk? Now, for continuing the, the decades of how we got to this point, transgenderism quickly followed on the heels of gay marriage. Linda Hirschman, she explains how America quickly began to celebrate gay marriage. She says this. I don't know if I put it up there. She says, the movement succeeded uniquely and in large part because at the critical moments, its leaders made a moral claim. Gay is good. The transgender movement followed suit and made the same moral claim. By convincing society that this is a moral issue, now people who oppose it are immoral. And, and, and if you're, if maybe you're a little bit like me, I, I just don't like that immediately, right? I'm like, hey, that's immoral. I'm like, is it? I, am I doing something wrong? Did I do something wrong? But because that's been the claim, now that's the line. And I get it. We have different starting points, so we have different conclusions on morality. The Bible starts with, the Lord is good. Western society starts with, people are good, and people get to define what good is. So we're going to have different conclusions if we have that varying of starting points. But the current moral claim, transgender is good, is so intense that it is permissible to surgically alter a child's body to match a sense of self. And then that position states it's bigoted to try and change the boy's sense of self to match his body. But it's good to, to surgically alter his body to match his desires, his sense of self. From a, a biblical worldview, feel grieved because these are the effects of the fall. This is the, the brokenness. How broken is the world? This is how broken the world is, that the, the effects of the fall are so pervasive that they also affected our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. So because you may have a desire, potentially even born with that desire, does not make the desire good and valid. That would to ignore sin in the world. That to ignore that the fall ever happened. Sin has broken the world and broken humanity's desires. So what do we do? That Romans 1. Our, our hearts suppress the truth and pledge allegiance to ourselves over and against the creator. And that's true for all of us. As I was saying, 
We have sinful desires. I have sinful desires. Just because you do have a desire does not make it good. We are royals, not ruined by the fall, in need of someone to rescue us, wash us, and restore our dignity. So what does the New Testament say about Psalm 8? Hebrews 2 says this, For he for he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Oh, now we see we're talking about Jesus, friends, subjecting everything to Jesus. He left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him but we do see jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by god's grace he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death verse 10 for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was entirely appropriate that god for whom and through whom all things exist should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings Jesus is the Son of Man. That the full fulfillment of Psalm 8 is Jesus is the Son of Man, the second Adam who tasted death for us and in so defeated death. And then verse 14 adds, through death he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And now everything's under his feet. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe me, Ephesians 2 says that, Jesus, that, that the Father, uh, uh, that he died and he rose the Son from the grave and put everything. Ephesians 2 quotes Psalm 8 as well and says, everything is under Jesus' feet. He wisely rules over everything, sitting right next to the Father, crowned with honor and glory. and you get back to real issues. The gospel states people do not need gender change but heart change. They don't need to be made the opposite but need to be made a new creation. Transgenderism contradicts the, the message of the gospel. The bad news is people's gender does not line up with their biological sex. The good news is they can alter their bodies with hormones and surgery to match their desires and thinking. And so medicine and technology are functional saviors that rescue people from their dysphoria. But that's, that's not the good news. The gospel of Jesus says that the bad news is that we all, whatever your desire, whatever your temptation, All are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we all are depraved in an active rebellion against God. It looks different from person to person. But the good news of Jesus states Jesus 
became a man to live as the obedient worshiper, died to rescue people from their sin, and rose from the grave to make them a new creation, where other philosophies attempt to adjust the body to match the desires. Jesus gives a new heart with new desires. That's good news. Jesus unites people to himself for they don't have to create an identity internally, but they can receive externally who they are in him. Strand and Peacock state, our our minds direct what we do with our bodies. Our function flows out of where our minds find our identity. The gospel uproots our identity from being in Adam and plants it, replants it in Christ. Jesus gives people a new identity where they're no longer alienated, no longer enemies, no longer filthy, condemned, but friends children of God, washed clean, declared righteous. And so with that ark, we return back to the hook of verse 1, but he does it in verse 9. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Because of who you are, because of everything you've created, because all of this reveals your goodness, shows off your power and goodness. But praise you also because you made us a little lower than you, crowned us with honor and glory, made us royals, vice regents to wisely rule and cultivate order in this world. But also praise you because we've made a mess of this world. And we've told us to create order and wisely rule. We've harshly ruled and we've created disorder. And we've contributed more chaos to this broken world. Wretched people that we are, who would save us from this? Praise the Lord Jesus. He's the Son of Man. He's the one who's crowned now with honor and glory, breathing dignity into you because he created you, stamped you with his image, and then gave you a, a, a new identity, restored you, reconciled you to relationship with the Father and said, I've made you a home. <laughs> and I am it. Pulled you into his family. So we can, we can argue about different things, but, but wherever you're at, I think if this is not you, we gotta come back to that starting point. Are you, gonna, are you gonna make all of your logical conclusions based on the starting point that you are good and you are the one who should define what is good? Or are you gonna turn? So now everything starts with the Lord is good. And there's invocations that are completely countercultural to our, how our world is operating now. And you'll get there. You'll get to that point. But don't get stuck arguing over the implications and not come to the heart of the matter. Who are you going to crown with glory and honor? Meaning, who are you going to bow down and worship? Who are you going to submit to? Who you're going to say, that person defines good. That person is good. 
That's the person that I will hold everything against as the standard of good. You know, when I think about the standard of good, I think of God, I don't think of an aura. I don't think of energy. I think about a wooden cross. Where he is, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, forgiving iniquity, abounding in steadfast love. The place where justice and love meet at the cross, that's goodness. That's how I can know and proclaim these difficult things. Why? Because the Lord is good. Let's respond. Father, I, I ask that you, you, you work in us. Really, based on that verb, Lord, that we glorify you, that we would see and celebrate your goodness. From, the, from your creation to being in this place with your people to considering redemption in the face of Jesus, Lord, I ask that we would glorify you, that we would bow down and worship you. And then, Lord, we'd receive and believe who you've made us. That if we're warring against that, trying to create an identity in ourselves, Lord, that we would stop fighting, stop wrestling with you, stop trying to create a righteousness on our own. And we turn and receive and believe what you've said about us, what you've done to us, who you've made us. And then, Lord, I ask that we would, in celebrating your goodness, we would praise you. That we wouldn't talk about praising you. That we wouldn't pray about praising you. We jump in like the Psalms. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Your majesty covers the heavens. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.